0: You are listening to a White Ridge Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. Today we're back into Joshua, and uh, I want to just recap a little bit of what we spoke of last week. Last week we identified the fact that we we are, are going to be faced with enemies of our spiritual life in this world. And that just as the enemies of Israel, when they were trying to take the promised land in the land of Canaan, just as the enemies of Israel had King Canaanite kings that formed alliances against them, so also, I said last week, we have our enemies that form alliances against us. And uh, the, the three principal uh, enemies, which have been mentioned already in the service, have, are the world, the flesh, and the devil. I mean, the world is this context we live in that provides us with all the opportunity to sin if we're inclined that way, and we all are. And then the, the flesh is that inward enemy that we all have. It's, it's sin that is living within us. We'll always have that portion with us as long as we live in this body, some internal desires that will seek to disobey what we know longingly we want to obey in God. And then over all of that, you have this cosmic kind of arch enemy, the devil, who has all of his little demons, evil spirits that do indeed influence us as Christians. And so when you put those alliances toge- that alliance together, that is what we are faced with as, as believers. And in order to overcome these three enemies, we said last week that we need to do three things consistently. The first thing we need to do is we need to go back to the beginning of our journey with God regularly. Go back there And In the scripture in Joshua chapter 10, we saw five times in that chapter the name Gilgal is mentioned. Gilgal was where they entered the land, where they set up their camp. And for them, it meant going back to the beginning where God gave them a new life and said, No longer are you back there in the wandering. No longer are you slaves. You're a new person, a new tribe. I'm, I'm leading you into my promises. And that, for the Christian, is the cross. None of us ever come into a Christian experience, a walk with God without the cross. And God says, if you're going to overcome your enemies, you've got to go back to the cross time and time again. Meditate on what Jesus did for us there. Secondly, we need to receive what we are given. And this isn't just going back to the cross. This is kind of this ongoing grace upon grace that we receive from God. In the journey. And it's incredible that God, in his mercy, is so personal about the a portion of grace that he meets out for each one of us in our particular battles and needs. And so for for Israel, when we looked at it last week, it says in the scriptures that there's this kind of rhythm that goes through Joshua. The Lord gave, Joshua took. The Lord gave, Joshua took. The Lord gave that people or that city into the hands of Israel, Joshua took it. And so it's that picture of us in that rhythm of God leading us into victory, leading us into overcoming power, but us responding. So we talked last week about that gruesome picture in Joshua 10 where Joshua calls the commanders of his army to come out and and he has the five Amorite kings laid out there. And he has them put their feet on their necks and slaughter them. And we said last week that that's the picture of slaying sin, of of crucifying or killing sin. And, and, and this past week, i talked to various people about, about what does that look like? And, and it, it is difficult to explain because your arena of sin is not my arena of sin. But, but putting sin to death is something that, that ha- we have to learn how to do it. And essentially, what it involves in all of our lives is cutting off every life source that is going to feed and give that sin life in your life. So in other words, if if your inclination is to sin with your tongue and you have gossip or slander, you fall into that or bad language or something that's not edifying and building up, well, you can do something about that. You can slay that sin by telling someone by naming it. Just name it. Name it to your closest friends and say, I have this problem and I want your help on overcoming it. And give them permission to speak to you about that or to confront you. Maybe you need to take a look at all the, the screen time that you get, and you say, well, I, I have a problem with looking at things I shouldn't look at or something. There's filters for that. There's software. Make the choice of, of not allowing life into that sin. Cut off whatever it is that is going to be allowed into feeding that desire or that temptation. And uh, memorize scripture that is, it, it is akin to that area. I've, I mean, it's not uncommon in our house to see scriptures on mirrors or on, on the door before you leave your bedroom or, or you know, in, on the fridge. Memorize the scriptures that pertain to the things that you want to keep on your mind so you're fit for battle that day. And uh, there's so many things. I think it begins with naming it. It begins with then sharing it with someone that's going to help you be accountable and beginning to then look at that sin and saying, what is giving it life? How can I cut off the life source of that sin? How, that's how I slay it. And sometimes it's not a one-time act. It's this constant discipline of doing that. And then finally, we said that to overcome our enemies in, in this way spiritually, it means resting in what God has done. It says in the scriptures that the land had rest from war. And that picture for us is, is Jesus Christ. The first picture we describe where we go back to our reference point is the cross. And we see Jesus on the cross. We understand what he did for us. And we, we are, are in him in that way. It's our reference point. Dying to self. The second, though, one is Jesus not on the cross, but seated with Christ in the heavenlies. That's a resting position. So when the scriptures say the land had rest from war, in corresponding fashion, I say, I'm in rest now in my faith because Jesus has won the victory and is now seated at the right hand of the Father. And the Bible says that we are seated with Christ in the heavenlies, resting. Right now, all of you are resting, except Wayne, he's standing you're resting because you're seated. Seating is a resting position. Christ is seated in the heavenlies. We are seated with Him in Christ, and we're resting. Now you're saying, well, that doesn't feel like my Christian life. I'm wrestling, not resting. And that's the point is that it's an apparent contradiction, but it's not a contradiction just because you and I can't understand it. You see, the the difference is that that the, the victories that we are, are looking toward in overcoming sin... we're we're fighting for or from victory, not for victory. You see, the resting idea is that we're fighting from the victory that God has given us, not for the victory that we think we need to earn in our own strength. Just as Israel, by the time we reach the end of chapter 11 in Joshua, they have already pretty much dominated the land of Canaan. And yet there were pockets of resistance everywhere that they had to yet fight and wrestle with. That's the picture of us. We are resting in Christ. But it doesn't mean we're not wrestling against sin and all the principalities that line up against us. Well, this morning as we continue, we're going to be looking at uh, moving on to maturity matters. And uh, we have this privilege this morning of looking at one of the characters of the Bible that I am very fond of. And uh, he, he's, his life would be described by a guy like Eugene Peterson today, as a life that is lived as a long obedience in the same direction. And that's what we're all looking for, whether you're young this morning or older. We're all looking for a long obedience in the same direction. That sustained obedience that develops maturity and backbone and and faith strength. That's what we're looking for. And so Paul, in talking about this, talks about the fight, the race that we're running, the fight that we're fighting, and so on. And uh, this morning, as we we think about this scripture, I want to think about the faith journey not as a sprint, but as a marathon. You now, we'd like to think that we're in a sprint, but we're really in a marathon. And let's think about that metaphor even this morning as well. Now, turn to Book of Joshua, chapter fourteen. And as you're turning to it, let me just take a little sideline. It's going to be not just a little one; it might take three or four minutes, but. As you're looking up Joshua 14, let me just tell you about another chapter in the Bible, Hebrews chapter 11. And Hebrews chapter 11, I'm sure many of you already know what it's about. It's that, it's that faith hall of fame. It's that place where the writer goes through all the list of these Old Testament saints that are incredible. You know? and, and the thing that's amazing is that he gets to a point where he realizes there's no way I'm going to finish this. And so he says in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 32, What more shall I say? I do not have time. Of course, he didn't have time, but he, he didn't have space. I'm sure his parchment was running out. you know. And and uh, so he didn't have space. He didn't have time. Because there were so many more in the Old Testament. And you know what? That there's so many more that should be in Hebrews 11 that aren't there. And guess who's not there? Joshua and Caleb. <laughs> Joshua and Caleb, don't make it into the Faith Hall of Fame. This is awful. You know, I have my own little Faith Hall of Fame that I've accrued over the years. And uh, I- I'm very grateful to God for people that He has given me. I think back to some of the people, many of them I've buried. I think of Pastor John Harvey, a man in Thunder Bay, a, a former pastor and a retired minister, and he, I would go to his apartment, and I, I can't tell you the presence of God that I felt when I was praying with Pastor John Harvey. Just incredible presence of God. I would feel in that room. I didn't want to leave that time of prayer. I thank God for that. I think of another person in my faith hall of fame is an old Jamaican woman by the name of Ethel Bryant. And when I think about Ethel Bryan, I I think about how many difficulties she went through. I mean, she would tell me stories that would make me think, how did you get through that? And yet, they weren't kind of this poor me kind of stories. They were, isn't God good kind of stories. And then there was a woman by the name of Helen Clammy. Helen Clammy had debilitating arthritis, just awful pain. Hardly could go out of her apartment. And and she had lists. She had papers of people she's praying for. And I was on that list. And she would tell me when I was visiting, she would tell me about answered prayer. Just an incredible woman of intercession. And then there was a man by the name of Monty Parks Wow, Monty Parks taught me a lot about living the Christ life by faith. When you come to the end of self and then depend on God, what does that look like, that exchanged life? But you know, more than even that, what Monty Parks taught me was not just how to live, but he taught me how to die. When I come time to die, if I have any time to think... I will be thinking about Monty Parks. He had cancer, he suffered. But his reference point was not this body that's racked with cancer. He would remind me every visit. I am seated with Christ in the heavenlies. We don't get that too often. Friends, you have you have someone in your life, I bet you think back for a moment, has God given you anybody that you would say, now that's an example, now that's, that's, that, should be, that person should be in Hebrews 11, and, and even if it's not, I, I'm going to put them in my Hebrews 11, if God gives you one or two in your life, thank Him for it, and let it be to you something that you draw from. So Joshua and Caleb didn't make it in. And you know, Joshua and Caleb, their story is incredible. Just let me rehearse it before we go to Joshua 14. I'm, I'm on my runway, but I'm going to lift off soon. Just don't be, bear with me. <laughs> so back in Kadesh Barnea, in Numbers chapter 13... After they had left Egypt and had been out of Egypt for less than a year, God had opened up a way for Israel, this massive population of slaves that had left Egypt, to be entering the promised land that he'd given to Abraham years before. And so he sends 12 spies in, and Moses sends them in. And and you know the story. Ten of them come back, and they say, No way are we entering that place. There's giants in that land. And two of them come back and they say, The Lord is with us, surely we will take them. And that's Joshua and Caleb. And then because of the disobedience of Israel and the overruling of Joshua and Caleb and the voice of faith, God judged His people and everybody for the next 40 years in the wilderness had to wander around. And for those years, everybody that was over the age of 20 died in the desert, except two. Who are they? Joshua and Caleb. Now think about it for a moment. Think about that for a moment. That for 40 years, you are wandering through the wilderness and and facing all the problems that Israel faced in the desert, and you're saying, it didn't need to be this way. I wanted to go in babysitting in the desert. I wonder how many times they had strong, strong struggles loving that people and leading that people. Turn to Joshua 14, and let's take a look at this scripture. Joshua chapter 14, and we're going to begin with verse 6, and we'll read just one story about Caleb. Let's stand together as we hear God's word. Now, the men of Judah approached Joshua at Gilgal, and Caleb, son of Jephunah the Kenesite, said to him, "'You know what the Lord said to Moses, the man of God at Kadesh Barnea, about you and me? I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to explore the land, and I brought him back a report according to my convictions. But my brothers who went up with me made the hearts of the people melt with fear.' I, however, followed the Lord my God with all my heart, wholeheartedly. So on that day, Moses swore to me, The land on which your feet have walked will be your inheritance, and that of your children forever, because you have followed the Lord my God wholeheartedly. Now then, just as the Lord promised, He has kept me alive for 45 years since the time He said this to Moses, while Israel moved about in the desert, So here I am today, 85 years old. I am still as strong today as the day Moses sent sent me out. I'm just as vigorous to go out to battle now as I was then. Now give me this hill country that the Lord promised me that, that, that day. You yourself heard then that the Anakites were there and their cities were large and fortified. But the Lord helping me, I will drive them out just as he said. And then Joshua blessed Caleb, son of Jephunneh, and gave him Hebron as his inheritance. So Hebron has belonged to Caleb, son of Jephunneh the Kenizzite, ever since because he followed the Lord, the God of Israel, wholeheartedly. Hebron used to be called Kiriath Arba, after Arba, who was the greatest man among the Anakites. And then the land had rest from war. You may be seated. God bless you. You may notice from the sermon title in the yellow sheet inside your bulletin, the sermon outline that the sermon title comes directly from the words of Joshua in chapter 14, verse 12. Give me this mountain, one of the translations says. That's what he said, give me this mountain. Now some of you might actually think of something else when you hear that terminology. You might recognize it as the title of the autobiography of the missionary Helen Rosevere who served in the Congo in Africa during the 1950s, 60s, and part of the 70s. Give me this mountain, give me that, my mountain, or, no, oh, sorry, give me this mountain. And uh, it's an incredible story of how God led her. She has a sequel to it as well, and it's called God Gave Us the Valley. And uh, so there's these two parts to her autobiography, an amazing woman of faith. And according to my research so far, she's still alive, she still travels around, she still talks and shares her faith and, 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 uh, at different conferences and so on and not too long ago she was asked in a conference, she was asked during the Q&A time uh, to ask her about what was the, some of the most difficult times of suffering in her mi- missionary career and she immediately referenced back to a time in what was called the Simba uprising in the Congo and the Simba uprising was awful uh, not only nationals being killed but, but uh, foreigners as well and she said It was awful because she was raped twice during that time. She writes this, or she said this at that conference. Government soldiers came to my bungalow. They ransacked it, grabbed me. I was beaten and kicked, losing my back teeth from the boot of a rebel soldier. They broke my glasses I could not see to protect myself from the next blow. Then one at a time, two army officers took me to my own bedroom and raped me. They then dragged me out into a clearing. They tied me to a tree, and they stood around laughing at me. And while I was there, beaten and humiliated, violated and ridiculed, someone discovered in the bungalow the only existing handwritten manuscript of a book I had been writing about God's work in the Congo over an 11-year period. 11 years written. They brought it out, put it on the ground in front of me, and they burned it. And as I watched the book go up in smoke... Through clenched teeth, I said to myself, Is it worth it? Is it worth it? Eleven years of my life poured out in selfless service for the African people, and now this? And the minute that I said this, God's Holy Spirit settled over me, that terrible scene, and God began to speak to me. And this is what he said. He said, Helen, my daughter Helen, you're asking the wrong question. The question is not, is it worth it? The question is, am I worthy? Am I, the Lord Jesus, who gave his life for you, worthy for you to make this kind of sacrifice for me? And God broke my heart. I looked up. and You can picture this. She's raped and violated. She's tied to a tree. And it says, she looked up to the heavens, and she said this, O Lord Jesus, yes, it is worth it, because thou art worthy. Thou art worthy. Friends, I wonder how many times Joshua and Caleb, in those 40 years of wandering, going through all the difficulties, said, Is this worth it? Maybe some of you have actually said that too. Is this worth it? Today, I think, as we open up God's Word, we see what made it worth it and how Joshua and Caleb were able to continue on. The outline for this morning's message is found in that yellow insert. You'll notice from the introduction I have three things to say. I'm only going to say two of them. And the first point is the conviction of faith kept... Caleb's strong, and the second one is that the courage of hope kept Caleb young. And then we'll continue next week with looking at the compromise of sin that kept Israel vulnerable. Notice what Caleb says in chapter 14, verse 7 to to Joshua. He says, I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to explore the land, and I brought him back a report according to my convictions, but my brothers who went up with me and made the hearts of the people melt with fear. I, however, followed the Lord my God wholeheartedly. You know, that word wholeheartedly in the NIV is reserved for Joshua and Caleb. Seven times it's used of Joshua and Caleb in Numbers, Deuteronomy, and in Joshua. And it's this idea of a word that, that means to follow wholly after the Lord, W-H-O-L-L-Y. And it means this, this idea of not just kind of running a race but running all out in the race it's it's described of someone who's who's not leaving anything else behind but laying it all out on the line anybody can start a race but to finish a race and to finish it well that that requires this word wholeheartedly and joshua and caleb are described as wholehearted followers they live by their convictions that's what it says Caleb says, I brought him back a report according to my convictions. As soon as we enter into this word convictions, we have to start talking about what I'd like to describe this morning as reference points. Where do your convictions that you live by come from? Where do they come from? How are convictions formed and how do they continue to sustain you? There must have been tremendous pressure upon Joshua and Caleb to just succumb to the other ten. To just give in, to just give a a unanimous report. Yeah, we shouldn't take the land. It must have been a tremendous pressure. How How do we do when the voices around us are obsessed with the giants that they see and the fears that they feel? How do you and I do when we're the lonely voice of Caleb amidst many voices that are saying, look out for the giants, look out for yourself, look out for the fears, and so on? How do you do? Are your convictions formed by faith in a living God by a reference point outside of you, or is yourself your reference point? As I was preparing for this message... I, I took some time to just think about the various places that, that in my ministry I've lived and served. It's about four different stages of life, four or five. And I, I think every place I ever lived and served had its point and time, or ver- plural, times, when I had to live by, by conviction and it couldn't be anything sensory around me that I could live by. I had to live by my convictions. I, I decided I'd pull out a binder this morning. This binder that is full of letters and emails and all kinds of stuff, probably should have shredded it a while ago, but it's a, it's a monument to me of a, 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 about a four or five year Cold War battle against my pastoral ministry in a former pastorate. It all started How? It started because I refused to sign a letter to transfer the membership of a person from from our church to another church that they wanted to go to. I couldn't do it in good conscience. My convictions did not permit it. And all hell broke loose. And it's a hard and long story to tell you about, but basically, within a few months, I was hauled on the carpet, not just in my local church... I was called to go to Toronto to defend my credentials as an ordained pastor of that Baptist denomination. Living by your convictions is going to cost a painful time of our lives. God brought us through. I stayed in that church. God was good. I wouldn't be who I am today if I didn't do that. You see, living by your convictions is more about you than it is about anything else you stand for. It's about your maturity. I thought about our time in Bolivia, which I would not have thought was going to be as difficult as it was for us. just a brief season. There was a time in our, our ministry when Pat and I had to literally step out of ministry at the seminary that Canadian churches sent us to teach at. I remember making the phone call to colleagues and telling them in our conscience we cannot continue teaching in the seminary. I remember writing that letter to our head office in Toronto and saying this is the decision we've made. And What, what a grateful thing to, to receive support in that. But it was about a moral issue that I could not swallow. We could not just... I had, gone to a, I had gone to this person, I had pleaded with him to step back, to get counsel, to have help, It said, didn't want to do that. And it, it just felt like we had no recourse but to step back and say, we're not going to be involved this, this semester in the seminary. What did that do? Well, that just provoked the thing, it brought it out, it, it made it get dealt with. That's not something a missionary wants to do. You're supposed to be on their property, on their turf, in their land, under their rules. And if you're gonna live by your convictions, it's gonna cost you. But oh, what a what an incredible blessing God brings about. I can tell you that. You see, convictions are the backbone of your discipleship. If you're maturing, you have to have convictions or you're not going to mature. It's the backbone of your discipleship. It's what makes you not be the infant that's tossed here and there and blown by every wind of doctrine and teaching and so on. It's the backbone of what makes you who you are as you grow. And it's not just about you. It's about all the eyes that are looking at you in that moment of crisis. What's he going to do? Have you ever been up against these things? Have you ever been up against the kinds of times when you're supposed to be the voice of Caleb? And maybe you just caved. I've done that too. I want to tell you, I I want to encourage you this morning. Just learn from it. Because God is making you into a Caleb too. God's making you into a woman or a man of faith that is going to be an incredible encouragement to somebody else. The conviction of faith kept Caleb strong. The courage of hope, secondly, kept Caleb young. And as we look at verse 10 in Joshua 14, we see that Caleb is 85 years old, and yet as an older man, he still had the hope of living in the land that Moses promised him. The hope made him courageous. The hope gave him energy and strength and hope and and, and made him him think that that's possible. It it gave him that courage he needed. Forty years of wandering in the desert had not taken his spirit away. God was bigger than those giants and he was going to prove it one day. It's like Martin Luther said, when God's on your side, one is a majority. And Caleb believed God was on their side. I heard the story recently about Adoniram Judson, the missionary to Burma, many years ago, what's now called Myanmar. And he, he was there, and for 12 years he didn't have anybody come to Christ. First 12 years of his ministry in Burma, dark country at that time, nobody's coming to Christ. The mission board that sent him, they wrote him a very diplomatic letter suggesting that maybe it's time to come home. And at the end of the letter, they they propose the idea, what really are the prospects in Burma? And I love the way he responds. He responds in a letter back to the mission board, and he said, The future is as bright as the promises of God. (laughs) The future is as bright as the promises of God. Caleb was relying on the promises of God for 40 years. When we see him in in Canaan, he's still relying on the promises of God. And so he goes up to face the giants, the Anakites. Hudson Taylor writes this. He says, How many Christians estimate difficulties in light of their own resources and thus attempt little and often fail in the little that they attempt? All of God's giants have been weak men and women who did great things for God because they reckoned on God being with them. And so you see, the answer to Caleb's confidence and hope was not in himself. He was not his own reference point. The tribe of Judah didn't have a better army than any other tribe. They didn't have better warriors and so on. They were just like anybody else. Caleb's confidence comes from a reference point greater than himself. And in fact, if you go back to Numbers chapter 13, you'll find that. When we see the two reports come back, what is the difference between the 10 that brought their report back? What was their reference point? You know what they say? Numbers 13, 33. They say, we seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes. So what's their reference point? themselves. We seemed like grasshoppers. Joshua and Caleb come back, and what do they say? Chapter 14 of Numbers, verse 8, they said, if the Lord is pleased with us, he's going to lead us in. You see, if if you're your own reference point, there's always going to be some giant to make you afraid. There's always going to be something that's going to cause you fear. But if God is your reference point, not even those things will matter. If you're flying high in an airplane at 10,000 feet above the earth, the most important issue does not have to do with the condition of each passenger on the plane. What does it have to do with? At 10,000 feet, are you worried about mostly the condition of the plane? Or is there something else that you should worry about? It's The condition of the passengers don't It's the condition of the plane that matters. Someone came to me between the services and said, I think the pilot's more important. <laughs> I said, I'll go along with that. See, it doesn't matter. The condition of each passenger really... But the plane better be doing okay and the pilot, because if, if, they, if they aren't doing okay, then passengers are going to go down with it, eh? See, the, the questions we ask are, how am I doing with this? This is really a big thing I'm facing. How am I doing with this? It's, it's really, it's not so much that that you should be asking. You think like, how's God doing with this? Is this God's leading? Is it His will? Is this something He's doing? Is He in control? Is He going to be leading? I think about White Ridge Church right now and, and, our, and this McGillivray property and the steps that we're taking towards building a new facility. You know, this, this Tuesday evening when we gather at the boardroom and the board of our church gets together and, and David Wynn, the moderator, goes around the table and talks with us about these very things, he's not going around the table and saying, what do you think? What do you think? What do you think? Because it doesn't matter what the board thinks. What matters is what does God think? Because I don't want to set one foot on that land if God is not leading the charge in the vision that God has for this church, for this community, for this world. If that's not about that, then we don't want to go. And if it is about that, then I want to say, let's get going. It is that simple, folks. It is. Where's our reference point? Caleb's reference point was the Lord. And in chapter 14, verse 12, he says about the, the Anakites, the Lord helping me, I will drive them out just as God said. And in verse 13, Joshua gives in the city of Hebron. And Hebron is a, a city that in Hebrew means communion. And I like to think that that communion was, was Caleb thinking that him and God are together in this thing, that communion. And then notice chapter 15, verse 14, what does it say? From Hebron, Caleb drove out the three Anakites, and then he marched up to the city of Dibur. <laughs> I love it. He Drives out those giants. Now, there's still more. There's others. We'll find them in, in uh, Judges, and we'll see them in 1 Samuel. Sam, uh, Sam, Samson came up against them, the Philistines. David came up against them, Goliath. But, but Caleb's taking possession of his possessions. Wouldn't it be nice if the history of Israel was just like Caleb? But that's not exactly what we read. Next week, when we get together, we're going to talk about more of this. And you'll notice in chapter 18, verse 2, when the tribes come back together after having been deployed to take their territory, seven of the 12 tribes haven't even started at Shiloh. And so God says through Joshua, what are you waiting for? It's interesting that the yellow insert that you have in your bulletin has a map of of the boundary lines of the promised land, and we'll look at this more next week. But, you know, it, it looks so nice and clean and tidy, but the fact is that not one, not one, even Judah where Caleb was, not one of the tribes of Israel fully possessed what they were given. You might think, that's awful, that's discouraging. No, I actually find it encouraging. Because I find that as a Christian, I'm not fully possessing all that God's given me. So I find encouragement in my brother Israelites. So next week we're going to come back together and look at the third point, the compromise of sin. I heard a story once about a compromise of a hunter and a bear. And the hunter went out to try and shoot the bear. And he had his rifle and he wanted to get a new fur coat out of this. And so he went out and he saw a bear and he had his, the bear in his sights. And the bear said, ho, hold, 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 hold it a second. And so the, the hunter lowered his, his rifle and said, could we not talk about this and maybe come to a compromise where we both get what we want? And so he invited him back to his den, and the hunter went back to his den and followed, followed him in, and a few minutes later, the bear uh, came out of the den, and he was picking his teeth. And the bear announced that they had come to a compromise. He had his dinner that he wanted and the hunter had his fur coat. <laughs> Isn't that a great way to end a sermon? <laughs> point, the point is that the compromises are never good. We, we lose in compromises. So next week we're going to talk a little bit about that. I'm going to end our service in a little bit of a different way. I have the worship team to come. And um, this morning as we've talked about the Wonderful examples that we see in men like Caleb and Joshua. I'm going to ask that we take some time to pray for some of the older people in our church family. I I want to say to you, if you're older, in other words, I'll I'll define older the way that we define college and careers, you know, 18 and whatever. Similarly, you know, the the older folks, if you're on that side of more behind you than ahead of you, I don't know, If that if that's you, I'm I'm honestly asking you stand right now. Please do this. Don't don't be slow. Come on, Bob. Don't. <laughs> Come on. Wendy, I'm sorry but you're there, okay? Okay, brothers and sisters. Yes, there's there's various ones here. Okay. Now, I'm going to ask everybody else to stand and just put your hand on their shoulder, okay? If you're close enough, everybody that has stood Put your hand on their shoulder, and let's just have a word of prayer for these wonderful folks. Let's pray. Well, Father God, we thank you so much for those that are advanced in years among us. Lord, we need them because they have stories to tell that would encourage our faith if we were to hear them. Lord, they have lived longer and journeyed longer with you. And they have seen your faithfulness, even as Joshua and Caleb did. And Father, I pray that we would learn from them and not muzzle their voices, but hear their voices and follow many of their examples. And God, right now, as we have our hands on them, we just pray in Jesus' name, would you give them a Caleb-like spirit? Would you give them the wholeheartedness to press on and to follow you and to lay it out wholeheartedly for you? Because many eyes are watching them, oh God. Our eyes are watching them. We need them to finish well. It matters to us that they finish well, oh God. So give them the grace. And Lord, all of us, may we be on the trajectory of being the Calebs and the Joshua's for this and future generations. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.